Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Chris Latner. Chris is the creator of the Swift programming language. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks, Garrick. It's great to be here. Yes, yes, it is. I'm so, so happy to have you on. I mean, man, I'm really, really excited. I uh, I probably shouldn't have drank coffee this morning because like, my heartbeat is going really fast. And you definitely have something to do with that. You changed my life in the most dramatic way. I mean, well, of course, there's many other people involved. Um, you get a lot of attention for that. But like, anyways, the programming language, Swift, like really, it did change my life. Before Swift, I feel like I could not have been a programmer. I don't know, for some reason, like because of it, I feel like I can. And uh, I went from being a lawyer to being a programmer and loving my day every day. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, that's really awesome. I'm excited to be here. I've been listening to your show for quite a while. And, you know, you've been a little bit quiet after the season ended. So <laughs> let's mix it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, how are you right now? What are you up to? I am uh, here in Los Angeles and it's, uh, you know, it's morning. I have my coffee and uh, yeah, what are you up to? Yeah, I'm, I'm taking it easy. I have a Diet Coke, which is my staple. I have way too much. Oh, that's so, great. You know, hopefully all the preservatives keep me young. <laughs> that Not sure is, it works that way. <laughs> that's great. All right. So I want to go back like I always do with all my guests to the beginning. Um, so I actually had the chance to read um, your website this morning. I, I didn't realize there's actually quite a bit of information on your personal website. You know, you have your resume and all this. Um, and uh, first off, one of the things on your website says you're not a web designer. Uh, is that a kind of a joke to like talk about your website? Because your website's pretty good. It's actually pretty clean. But is that kind of like a joke? Yeah, it's a little bit of a joke. My, my web design is uh, HTML3 era. Nice. And I'm okay with that. Okay, cool. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it was simple before simple was the in thing. And now it's back in style. So, hey, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah, so there's a lot of info um, on there. So I don't really want to just kind of go through, the, you know, your resume. I want to go back to, you know, your earliest memory of, of programming. Uh, you know, for me, I started programming pretty late uh, in my life. It sounds like you probably started programming pretty early. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So I've been programming for somewhere around 30 years now, which seems like forever. I started when I was a kid. Um, it's actually kind of funny. It was total accident. My parents were going to some timeshare or something like that, and they uh, got this Commodore VIC-20 for free. They brought it home, and um, I started playing with it. It came with a basic interpreter, and I just kind of worked through the, the manual and typed in all the programs, and it didn't have a way of saving programs back then. Um, back then, they didn't have hard drives. They didn't have floppy drives or anything like that. The only way to save programs on those kinds of computers were if you had the tape drive. And it was like a little cassette tape that you could save on. But we didn't have one. And so this was always a, a challenge when I'd be writing some program or trying something. And then my mom would turn off the computer at the end of the night. And I'd be so mad. <laughs> Things have changed since then. Wait, so you're saying that your parents went to like a timeshare where, like where they're trying to get people to buy a timeshare, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And in exchange for listening to the presentation, they got a computer? Yep, yep. Well, so oh. at that point in time, that computer was completely obsolete, and they had moved on to the Commodore 64 and the other other things. 
And so I think it was um, you know, getting rid of in- inventory or something. But oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, it was great for me. That is so good. Okay, so your parents come home from, you know, from this timeshare meeting, and they, they bring home this computer. And did they just give it to you, or was it like the family computer, or what was well, it wasn't was really a, a computer in the way we think of them today. It, oh, okay. It, it was a kind of thing where you plug it into your TV. Okay. And so you use the TV, just the family TV, as the monitor. And it really was kind of just a keyboard with a whole bunch of cables that came out of it, and the computer was inside of it. And wow. the games themselves would be on these cartridges. And so it was kind of like the old Nintendo, if you remember that, where right. you plug in a cartridge into the top. It was the same idea, but a little bit earlier. Um, and so, of course, the most thing that we did with it, or the thing we started with, was playing games. And so it came with three or four games, and then we ended up getting some more games. Um, and that was how the family used it. And then I ended up getting into basic programming. So before that computer you know, got brought home, was there already a computer in the house, or was there any idea of computing in the house? No, not at all. And there's no, I have no background in it in the family. Um, it's just something I fell into. Wow, that is such a happy, happy yeah. coincidence. Okay, so before the computer got there, what were you doing then? Were you already playing games, or like like graphic, you know, computer type games, or were you? No, I, I mean I was pretty young at the time. I was probably six or seven or eight or something like that. I don't remember exactly. So I was collecting baseball cards and doing other things, playing with friends. But. Oh, nice. Yeah, I collected uh, baseball cards. Like Top Deck, I think were the ones yeah, I like. Yeah, wow. yeah. Fleer, Top Deck, all those things. So you said it came with like a book, like a basic book or something? Yeah. Well, so that's one of the things I think that it's, it's really sad about today's world is um, back in the day, if you got a, a computer like a TSR-80 or, um, you know, one of the early computers, they would always come with a basic manual. And it was so great because you would get a computer and you could program it. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that, uh, you know, the industry wasn't, as mature as it is today and there weren't programs for everything there weren't apps in you know, the millions out there that you can get and use and so people customized it a little bit and that was how many people got started and it's sad that today you get a computer and often there's no way to program it out of the box and there's or at least or at least like uh, nothing that's encouraging you or telling you that it's even an option that's really interesting yeah. that you say that yeah. actually i hear that a lot from from people I interview, they, they say, you know, I got a computer and I, I had a book or something like that. And I remember when I was um, like starting to get into programming, like there really wasn't anything like telling me how to do it. But I feel like with Swift and with Swift Playgrounds, like that really is a movement towards that book. Yeah, in that's, a way. that's a big part of the idea. Um, and the, gr- the great thing about being a kid is you have so much spare time. <laughs> Right. And and if you have something that you something just sitting there waiting to be investigated, at some point, boredom will force you to go play with it and see if you like it. Um, But but absolutely. Swift is totally designed to be teachable, to be easy to learn. Swift Playgrounds is all about kind of capturing the the next generation of programmers and getting people in the door so they can have the same kinds of experiences that I did uh, many years ago. Yeah, and I totally understand that, appreciate it. I'm right on board, uh, board with that. I think, um, so like 
I read on your website, that's one thing that you really care about is actually making programming more accessible. And so, and that's, it sounds like what you've been doing a lot of, um, you know, with, with your work with, you know, now Swift and, and Swift Playgrounds. But what I want to do is find out how you got to that realization. Like, uh, can we agree that that is a big part of what drives you? Like yeah, making, absolutely. Okay. So, I mean, my, my, my hope is that, you know, I don't, I don't think everybody should uh, become a professional programmer. That, that to me doesn't seem like a, a really important goal. To me, it seems like programming should be a tool that's in your toolbox. And if you're an archaeologist or you're, you're a fine art person or something like that, um, having, a, having knowledge about programming is a great way to solve some kinds of problems, just like um, many people use spreadsheets. It's just a skill that is generally useful for solving lots of different kinds of problems. Um, programming seems like the same, same thing. So... I, what I want to do then is, uh, with that in mind, like go back and ha- see how you got to that realization. So, like, you get this computer, and you're you're starting to work on it. Like, but what was? I mean, you were pretty young. Do you remember what you thought about most, or what was really driving you most? I, for me, it was like I think it was like Lucky Charms and like Coca Cola. Like, I would have <laughs> dreams about that stuff. I'd wake up and it wouldn't be on the side of the bed, you know, and like. So what was like trying to driving you at that time? And then, and then how did we get to where we are now? Um, it's, that's been a long time ago, so it's hard yeah. to remember exactly, but <laughs> I remember I, re- I really did like computer games. And so I think computer games had a, a big part of it. And so that was one of the things that I liked playing the games on the computer and then trying to understand what, the, what it meant and how it worked. And that, that I think was the initial hook. And so were you doing this by yourself or did you have any friends? Uh, yeah, I was doing- pretty solitary and I was a pretty solitary kid that didn't have a lot of friends. <laughs> See, I, but, I, I hear that a lot. It's really interesting. Yeah. But like there's something inside of you that just kept you going. It was that must have been that interest or that excitement oh, with the games. Did that continue into like high school? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I went from the, the Commodore through various uh, other basic systems. We eventually got a PC and that came with GW Basic, and eventually DOS incorporated this Q Basic thing, and eventually my parents got me this thing called Quick Basic, which was the souped-up version of Q Basic. And so I stuck with Basic kind of throughout elementary school. Um, in junior high, I was, which is ninth and tenth grade, or no, seventh and eighth grade. Um, they had a class on computers and uh, got into Turbo Pascal. Turbo Pascal is a really awesome um, programming system because it had everything you wanted. It was a more real programming language and it had inline assembly. And so at the same time, we got a modem for a computer and that enabled me to connect to BBSs back in the day. And I'm pretty sure most of your listeners don't know what a BBS is. That was before the internet. Um, people Le- calling it's like each a bull- other bulletin board or something, right? Yeah, I remember someone explained system. this to me recently. Yeah, it's think of it as you have a, a computer connected to a modem, which connects to your phone, and then you call one other computer point to point, and people would run a computer in their home to be kind of like a server where people would call into and connect and share files and talk about things, and and that was a really early version of. Um, some of the ideas that led to the internet. So were you doing anything else besides like computing? I read on your website you were doing, you did fencing in college. So were you doing any kind of sporting or were you mostly just um, focused on computing? Like did you, 
and did you just discover very early on that this is what you wanted to do? Um, I, I mean, I had other interests and um, built model rockets and stuff like that and did, did other things as well. But um, it was kind of my main main interest and I was geeking out and I'm still geeking out, you know, 30 years later. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. I, I love no, not at all. I love asking people like what it is. Usually, it's it's a lot of the same answers. But I'm really curious, like what is it for you, especially um, you, because a lot of the people I talk to are more you know iOS developers. You're doing a lot of low level stuff. Like what is it for you then? And and w- has it been the same things? So, like early on, what was it for you that really drove you and got you excited? Or- um, well, so one of the things that was fun uh, way back in the day was a thing called the demo scene. Um, the demo scene was, uh, so when, when computers were a lot slower than they are now, getting them to do impressive things with graphics and with sound was uh, actually competitive. And so there were teams of people that worked together. Often they were college students. Um, and I never met any of these people, but you could download their, the things that they built. And um, you would download their program and it, you would run it. And it would just be amazing to see what it could get your computer to do. This is wow. three-dimensional graphics on a 486 or something like that. And it was just completely mind-blowing. And if you dug into it and figured out what they were doing, they were talking about it and they were sharing ideas and they were sharing code in a lot of cases. And there was a very early uh, FTP site when this was a little bit later when I was in high school um, called X2 FTP. And it was in Finland. And it was kind of the central repository for a bunch of these applications and their ideas and their code. And so it was, it was really great. It was kind of like the early version of open source where people were sharing things and learning from each other and bouncing ideas off each other. It was, it was really cool. What was the main resource that enabled you to, to continue and to like develop? I mean, we live in a world where we have you know, all the information at our fingertips. But I'm assuming it was a little harder to find out this information. Like, what was the main resource that, that got you, you know, got you all that stuff? Like, how it did you was, find out it, about FTP? It, it was, so I, I had a friend in high school, and he had an account on a, uh, one of the first Unix systems, which connected to an early version of the Internet, and um, that helped. Uh, but a lot of it was reading actual books. Remember when we learned from books? <laughs> so you'd go to the library and check out books. Yeah, yeah. Or you go to the the computer store and uh, there'd be you know a section of books in it and often they'd have a floppy disk in the back and you know you could get you could learn lots of things that way. So you go to high school and you're studying computer science in in high school. Is there like a lot of classes or are you mostly just doing it outside? Um, so I, w- I was pretty lucky. So I went to to high school in a rural area. Um, it was definitely not an academically focused school, um, but there, there was a guy who ran the computer systems, and he was really great. I took to him, and he showed me a lot, and I learned a lot from him. And um, he did teach a class or two, but it was kind of it wasn't a standard part of the curriculum. Um, the uh, I got really lucky then, and else other times in life, just because of happenstance of somebody who really cared and took me under their wing and showed me things and challenged me and exposed me to new things and new ideas. And so that, that was a big part of it. 
Yeah, it sounds like you had a lot of um, good support. It sounds like your your parents yeah. were really supportive. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, wow, very lucky to find someone at your high school that was supportive. Yeah. I, I definitely like want to encourage that to everyone. Uh, you know, it's always good to surround yourself with people that are you know trying to do the same thing as you. And uh, yeah, and on the other side as well, if if there's somebody that you, you see, you know, maybe a awkward kid in high school or something, you, you know, take them under your wing and show them a few things. Right. Right. So. You graduate high school and you you're just all set. You're like definitely studying computer science. Yeah. Um, you go to University of Portland. Yep. So I went to the University of Portland, which was a small, small Catholic school that was 45 minutes away from where I lived. So it was close to home, but not at home, which was great. And that was where I first really met other people who um, cared about academics and programming and computer science and. They had a computer science program, and um, and that was amazing. That, that totally changed my life. <laughs> Suddenly, I felt like I fit in a lot better and um, could, you know, really explore and get a lot of support. And there were people that I was, other students that I was learning from. It was really exciting for me. What um, type of what type of programming were you doing before? Right before you, you know, went to college, like were you making games? Were you making graphics? It was mostly graphics, and so one of the cool things about Turbo Pascal was that it came with um, support for inline assembly language, and so you could write real machine code right in the middle of your 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 Pascal programs, and so from the the demo side of things, um, you know, trying to get high performance and trying to get really cool graphics and and sound and driving the hardware directly, that was something that I learned a lot about and I was really excited about. Um, then I jumped into college and the first first day it was, okay, well, here's Java. <laughs> 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 that was that was very different. And why? So, why? Um, well, it was just it was just very high level and uh, you didn't have you didn't know how the hardware worked and it was very abstracted. But it was great okay. for learning and I know that many people learn with with Java or with Python. Um, but for me, that was a big, a big shift. So you were already pretty far ahead or you were just doing different stuff? Um, I was doing different stuff, but I, I think the Java, Java world came easily to me because I, I knew a lot of the programming concepts. Okay. And so that worked out really well. Um, it's, through, through college, I always had both the college thing going on, but then something else. Um, my first year I was, um, or my first two years, I think I was in the Air Force ROTC training program, and so that consumed a lot of time and learned a lot about um, uh, leadership and other things from them, which was really great. Eventually, decided I didn't want to do that, and then uh, dropped out of that and found myself with a whole bunch of student loan debt and no way to pay it. So then I started working my way through college. <laughs> wow! Which which led to getting some really great jobs where I could actually do programming and. That, that was really good for me. So it sounds like because you were really into like graphics and even today it seems like to do really amazing graphic stuff, you want to get lower, like lower, you know, closer to the metal. That kind of leads to your continued interest like through university um, and then, you know, doing the whole LLVM Clang thing. Am, am I kind of right? I don't really understand everything like yeah, LLVM sure. so, and Clang, but is so, that kind of maybe why? Or, yeah, right? so again, I got really lucky in college. I had a really, really amazing professor, uh, Dr. Vegdahl at the University of Portland, and he, he loved compilers. And the, the department there was really tiny. I think there were seven or maybe nine people in my graduating class for computer science. So it was, it was a totally tiny, tight-knit, uh, group, 
but he really loved compilers. He, um, that, that, that love was infectious, I guess. Um, we did an independent, independent study class together and I got to take the, the toy project for our compilers class and turn it into something that was still very much a toy, but, but it was definitely more interesting. And coming out of that, I decided I wanted to go to graduate school and, um, that was the thing that I thought was interesting. And so I jumped to the University of Illinois and um, started working on eventually LLVM. So what was it, like what was before LLVM, if there was or the most comparable thing? And like what was it about that thing that made LLVM you know, better or necessary? Sure. So when I started LLVM, um, the, the world as of, I think, 2000, yeah, the year 2000, Ignoring the the date crisis, <laughs> um, was was really dominated by GCC, and GCC was the only really viable open source compiler out there, um, at least for C and C plus plus and things like that. Um, there there were definitely a few research compilers out there. I remember there was this Swift compiler out of Stanford, and there there were a variety of other ones, um, but none of them really worked very well. And so our idea for LLVM was to take the Java virtual machine, but build something lower level. And we thought that if we could do a bunch of optimization on this lower level virtual machine um, uh, before you run your application, that it would be much quicker to get the application running and it could be JIT compiled much faster and you could get better performance and things like that. It, so, it all kind of took, turned the corner and, and went a weird way because we eventually didn't even do anything with Java and we went down the path of getting a better C compiler. <laughs> But that was the original idea of LLVM. So you mentioned GDCC? Uh, uh, GCC, the GNU C compiler. Okay, GCC. Okay, yeah. so what, like at kind of a basic level or as simple as I guess you can explain, like what is it that GCC was doing and like what is it that, you know, and what is it, like what are these things? What You say compiler, is that what it is? Like what yeah. are these things really? Yeah. So So I'll start with what is a compiler. Um, when, when you write code, so if you write Swift code or you write C code, you, you have to transform that code into something the actual computer can understand. So the computer has very simple instructions, things like move and jump and add, but it doesn't have things to do higher level operations. Um, so if you want to have a string, for example, the, the computer doesn't know anything about strings. All it knows is uh, how bytes work. And so there's this big difference between the code you write as a, as, a, as a programmer where you say, give me a string and concatenate these two strings together and the actual operations that the computer performs. And so the compiler takes that source code, it checks to make sure that you wrote it the right way. And if, if you didn't, then it'll give you error messages and warnings to say, hey, you know, this doesn't compile because you have a syntax error. It then after checking to make sure it's okay, it transforms it and it starts doing a thing called lowering. Lowering transforms the high-level code that you write into something closer and closer and closer to that bare metal instruction set that the computer understands. And it's a really interesting and hard problem because there are all kinds of different computers. Your iPhone, for example, has an ARM processor in it, and your Mac may have an x86 Intel processor, and they work very differently. And it's the compiler's job to make it so that you can just write Swift code and not have to worry about it. Wow. I mean, I'm thinking so many things, but I'm thinking one thing. It's like, basically, like, I don't have to worry about that stuff. I just, like, focus on, you know, my Swift code. But because of, you know, compiler engineers, 
Like, I don't have to think about that. But then I have this like tension like, oh, but, you know, do does that mean I'm not a programmer? Like, do I need to learn about compilers? You know, do you have any thoughts on something like that? I I think it's very fair to say you don't have to know anything about compilers to be an awesome programmer. (laughs) So don't worry about that. Uh, That said, I think that if you're down the more academic side of things, if you really love data structures and the algorithms classes and, and, you know, know, that kind of stuff, then compilers are a very practical application of a lot of the the cool um, mathematical and uh, algorithmic kinds of things that get taught in school. And that's one of the things I really loved about them is that it was taking the theory that that you get taught, here's how binary trees work and here's how you can do all these different operations on them. But it was a great application of that in a way that, you know, shows up and is important. And compilers have a ton of really hard problems in them. So it's a lot of fun. So if someone wanted to start poking around with this whole concept of a compiler, uh, can is there like a portion of the open source Swift stuff where you can look and see how Swift, like high level Swift code, starts to become something else? Uh, you can do that. Um, another simpler way to go is I actually wrote a tutorial for LLVM many years ago called the Kaleidoscope tutorial, which you can search for. Um, it it is kind of a from scratch implementation of a really really simple programming language that doesn't even have types. Um, and just kind of shows you how you can use LLVM to compile that. And that's that's probably the simplest way to say, okay, how does a parser work? The parser is the thing that takes takes your code and checks to see if it's valid. And then how do you build, how do you actually send that to LLVM, which then does all the heavy lifting to do the code generation piece of it. Code okay. generation is the part that generates the machine code that the the, the machine understands. Okay, I'll definitely link to that um, in the show notes then. Would you say, sure, we don't have to understand, um, you know, if I'm just making, let's say, an iOS app, I don't have to to understand the compiler, but if I start to learn more about how the Swift compiler works, um, that I could become a better Swift programmer? Um, I don't think that you necessarily need to know how the Swift compiler works, but I think that it is very good at some point in your journey to understand how the the machine works, because... Uh, it's, it's just like with performance. Performance is not something that most people ever have to care about. But when you do care about it, you start caring about it a lot. And, you know, you can get you can get a lot done by just writing very high level code. And particularly if you're at the UI layer, performance is usually not the biggest concern that you have to worry about. But then if you end up writing an underlying underlying package or some other library that's used, in um, a very data-intensive way, it starts to matter. And when that happens, it really helps to have a pretty good understanding of the abstract idea of how, how the computer is running your code so that you know this, this thing will be more expensive than that thing. And you just have an idea of how to reshape your code and get the best, best out of the computer. And when we say computer, do we mean the computer that, is, that we're using to build the application or the computer that's going to be running it? Both. Um, okay. So even, even though they're different, an Intel processor and an ARM processor actually have a ton in common. Okay. And you can, you know, I don't, I don't think that knowing all the ins and outs of how to write assembly language is really as important as understanding how a computer fetches instructions and then executes them and what branch prediction is and the other, other pieces that go into uh, how, how all, all modern microprocessors work. 
Okay, so what would be a good... But again, I don't think this is a place to start if you're just learning how to program. If you're learning how to program, right. I would start with, um, you know, to me, the, the important thing is find, 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 set a goal. Decide, I'm going to try to build this and then work through some tutorials and learn with that, with that goal in mind so that you have something you're shooting for and then when you get it done, you have something to feel proud of. For sure, for sure. Okay, so we are at the 30-minute mark, so I want to start talking about Swift specifically. But before we do, you, you know, you are the known as the creator. You are the creator of the Swift programming language. Uh, when you're in college, you know, you're doing, you end up doing uh, Clang and LLVM, which become these like really important things. I don't know that again. I don't know that much about them, but they seem to be very important. Um, are you? What are you thinking about? Like when you're in college or in university, like what are you thinking that you'll become? Are you thinking you're going to be, you know, working, I don't know, as like a consultant or a, like some kind of programmer, or are you already thinking like, wow, I really like this stuff. I want to build these kind of developer tools. Yeah. So, um, I wasn't really thinking about that hard. I don't have a grand life plan. I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. In, <laughs> fact, in fact, growing up seems really unfortunate. I'd rather not. <laughs> So um, I guess the story for me is that I was working on LLVM at the University of Illinois and getting ready to graduate. Um, when I did that, I did the search and said, okay, well, I, LLVM is an academic, researchy kind of compiler system. Um, it certainly isn't production quality or usable out of the box by anybody. Is there a place I could go that would let me continue to work on it? And um, I talked to a couple of different places, but... Uh, uh, Apple was the one that said, hey, yeah, come here, we'll, we'll give you a shot, and um, you can keep working on it. And if it turns into something great, then you can keep working on it. If it doesn't, then you can work on our compiler. Um, and which was the GCC thing. Which was the GCC compiler, yep. Wow. wow. That ended up working out really well, and it kind of grew over time. Clang, which is the C and C++ part of it, was something that uh, I and other people started at Apple. And... We built that out, and now it's become a pretty industry standard C and C++ and Objective-C compiler. So if you write Objective-C code, that's what you're using. Um, and that, so I guess the timeline went that Clang just got full C++ support in 2010. And Clang is an implementation of a compiler, the, the front end, the parser for C and C++ and Objective-C. And C++ is a really, really hard language to implement. If you think it's hard to use, you should try implementing it. It's crazy. <laughs> um, and so as that work was not really done, but as it was um, shippable, that's when I started thinking, okay, well, I have spent all this time implementing other people's languages. C, C++, even Objective-C have a lot of greatness in them, but they also have a lot of opportunity to improve them. And so what... What could we do? And started playing around with that, and that turned into Swift. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah, I mean, I think it's amazing what happens when you just follow you know, your passion or like what you want. So you created something in university, and all you really knew was that you wanted to keep working on it. And you did that, and you know, it led you to where you are now. So yeah, that's so, that's so great. Yeah, um, for, for me, it's a matter of start working on something and then see it through. Um, maybe not till it's finally, finally done, but to the point where it's really useful and it has legs of its own. And then say, okay, what is the next step? What is the logical 
thing that can be built on top of it, or how can I make it more useful by adding some new capability and broaden it out and just kind of keep pulling on the string and see where it goes. Right on, right on. So I want to move to uh, the Swift section. Uh, real quick about how Chris and I met, by the way. Um, we actually met in person. You're actually one of the, the rare cases of you know, where a guest, where I actually met the guest. A lot of people I interview, I haven't even met. I went to Swift Summit. Shout out to Swift Summit uh, back in, I think it was like November. And you were there. And I was like, what? And uh, everyone was trying to talk to you. And I happened to kind of just jump in uh, real quick. And I had like three things I wanted to say. Um, and one of them was asking to you know, come on the show. And then I remember like I stepped away and I was like freaking out. We took a picture together, by the way. Maybe I'll post it. And I was like freaking out. And I kind of like went over by the Facebook booth. And I was like, uh, dude, like <laughs> kind of being really silly. Oh, man. But now here you are. So again, thank you so much for coming. All right. I want to get to... Um, you know, so, so Swift, uh, you announce it or yeah, I guess it was announced June, 2014. Um, what is like, can you tell us like what is going in your mind? Like what's going on in your mind? Take us to that moment where I think Craig Federighi introduces you and you walk on, on stage. It wasn't your first time like being on stage. I just realized you had done some like sessions before, but this I think is like the, maybe the first like bigger stage. I heard you did the, um, the state of the unions and stuff. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't remember that, but, but anyways, take us to that moment. Like you're walking on stage, like what's going through your mind? Well, so it's, it, I don't really remember exactly <laughs> while walking on stage, but uh, it was totally crazy. I'll say that. So I had had, I'd presented WWC many times before and Apple really, really cares and invests a lot of effort into WWC and trying to make the, the sessions and the presentations great. And so I had some experience with that. On the other hand, preparing for the keynote was a completely different thing and I had no idea what I was doing. And so I was kind of working really hard and trying to hope that it would come together. And it, it did finally. It was also very stressful because I was giving a demo and the demo wasn't working a few days before and <laughs> it all it all was very hectic, but it all came together and it, it was pretty great. Um, there were a lot of days of leading up to it of not sleeping and worrying <laughs> about lots of different things, but but it was it was very exciting. So. Yeah, I think you did an excellent job and you demoed you demoed Swift, you demoed playgrounds in yep. Xcode yep. and that live like blimp thing. Yep. Um, and, well, yeah, and, and I have to say one thing. Craig is amazing on stage. He's an amazing presenter. He's an amazing guy in general. Following him on stage is always terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But I think that everybody was just so surprised that, that there was so much excitement in the room that I, I don't think, I don't remember, I think you did an excellent job. And I think, you know, everyone was just really excited. Um, when it was announced, I didn't really know what it meant. Like, okay, there's a new programming language. And I remember afterwards trying to consume as much podcasts as I could, like Debug and, and all these other ones. Like, what does this mean? Um, what did it mean for you at that moment? Um, it was finally announced. Like, what did it mean for you? Um, well, so it was, it was really exciting. It was also... Uh, really challenging in a lot of ways. So uh, Swift, work started on Swift in 2010, somewhere around there. Um, I worked on it as a nights and weekends kind of a thing, just seeing what, where it could go. Uh, after a year, year and a half, pulled in a few other people to start working on it. Um, I think at, coming out of WWC 2013, so that's a year before Swift launched, 
we it became a really big focus for the developer tools team. And so that, that was where uh, Apple made the commitment, okay, we're going to really start investing in this. And instead of being half a dozen or maybe a dozen people that work on it, we're going to have a whole bunch of people working on it to bring up the IDE support, the debugger, the editor support, syntax highlighting, all, all the different things you need for a language to be real. And so the, the year leading up to it launching and implementing Playgrounds, for example, so the year leading up to it was a lot of work. And it was really exciting because we everybody on the team believed in what they were doing and they knew the impact and, and what it could mean. But on the other hand, it was also a, a quest in terms of we didn't exactly know what we were shooting for and we were learning along the way and a little bit making it up as we went. But the whole team had a lot of confidence that we could do it and that it would come together in the end. And it did. And so when it was announced, it was super exciting because the world got to see what so many people had been working on for so hard. And, you know, it was a secret project. And so it became not secret. And um, and so that was all super exciting. It was also super stressful, though, because we we had done it in secret. And so it hadn't really seen the broad range of different people's opinions and their thoughts and their use cases and, and stuff like that. And it also had quite a few bugs. And so the, the months and the years after that were a lot of listening to people, how they used it, reading blogs, seeing what people had problems with, trying to learn and make it better, trying to improve, improve all aspects of it. And so um, that first, the launch until, really until Swift 2 was, was really... A, a lot of work trying to listen and adapt and change. And if you're following Swift in the, the 1.0 kind of time frame, you saw it moved really, really fast. And that was a lot of people working really hard to make that happen. Yeah, it sounds like it was probably a very joyous moment, like a really huge team celebration. Like I'm kind of getting chills actually thinking about it, um, like everyone working together um, and then finally like releasing it. Um, but then immediately you have like a celebration moment and then immediately like, People are downloading it and already like giving responses and you guys are already probably in work mode after that. Yep, absolutely. Um, and, and I mean, Swift is the, the success of Swift has been so amazing, but it's, it's also really challenging for the team because it's so much easier to grow and evolve and, and iterate on something when it grows slowly. Swift has grown so fast, it's become much more of a challenge to move the language forward and do the right thing for the long term while also trying to make it great for people that are already using it. And and that's always been a really hard challenge for us. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because, you know, as you, as you said, you started working on it in uh, 2010. And so you probably had an idea of what you were, you know, maybe you were playing around, but you had an idea, assume, of something you were trying to solve. Um, and then people start, you know, other people come, uh, you know, start, you start forming a team around it and maybe those start to change and then it gets open sourced. And, but then like, how do you stick true to like those principles while still like, you know, being open and working with other people? It's really interesting. Yeah. Well, and, and a lot of the, the challenge with Swift was, and, and I mean, challenge in a good way, it was the, um, understanding the difference between, there's a compiler guy or a few compiler people that uh, want to work on building a new language, but there's also, which, which is fun, but not necessarily relevant to Apple business. <laughs> but then there's also the, um, can a new programming language improve Apple's core business? 
right? And so one of the major questions we had to answer in before it would launch or even before it really got resources to, to invest in it was, why not just make Objective-C better? Right. And, and the answer ended up being two things, one of which was we needed to make Objective-C better. And so Swift is the reason we did uh, Objective-C Arc, was, which is the automatic reference counting model in there, and, and the new, new literals and modules and a bunch of other features in Objective-C. But the other answer was we just couldn't make Objective-C safe. Objective-C was built on top of C, C has pointers and uninitialized variables and a lot of other problems that um, would make applications crash, but it would also make it so that programming took a lot more effort and time than it otherwise would in a safe language. And so one of the reasons that people love Swift programming is that um, you don't have to spend as much time debugging your, your application. You, you, of course, your application is never bug-free, but if you've ever written a C program and have to chase a dangling pointer bug, for example, it's, it's a completely different world, and it, it can be so frustrating and time-consuming. And Swift really helped define that away, and that was one of the reasons that Apple committed to doing a new language, was to move forward and uh, improve the safety of programming. Wow. Yeah, so it sounds like safety, I mean, that, and that was mentioned, it's always been very upfront, like safety was one of the first things, you know, was one of the main kind of goals of the language. Was that something that you thought about early on, or did that kind of come later as the team got bigger? That, that came somewhere along the way in, in terms of um, the soul searching of what it actually is, because a language is a, a lot of different things. It's the surface level syntax, the funk keyword in Swift, for example, um, it's, it's how arithmetic and how the different operators work, but it's also about how all the pieces fit together and, uh, making something safe in terms of memory safe requires a lot of work to make sure that everything happens in the right way. And it has to be a strong goal up front. And so I think everybody agreed that was, that was the right goal, but it's also really challenging because you also have to embrace things like C code and it's really important to be able to call C and C++ APIs in Swift. And so it, safety is one of these things where it's a goal, but it's not uh, an ironclad guarantee. It's a pragmatic balance of um, we want it code to be safe by default, but we want people to do unsafe things if that's what they need to get their job done. And so uh, like everything, it took iteration, and we learned along the way. We experimented. Um, we did the wrong thing and changed it to the right thing. Um, and that's just kind of how we learned as we went. So, you know, Swift being accessible is, again, a huge part of, of who I am uh, now. But again, I think it's it's just a genius, very genius, and I feel like very underappreciated, uh, you know, thing in the, in the world. The fact that Swift uh, is, is out, it's uh, more accessible, uh, it's more approachable. Uh, but then in, I think, sometime in 2000, I think October 2015, um, Swift is open source. Is that correct? October 2015? Um, I think that it was announced at WWDC 2015. Oh, that it would be. That it would be. And then it was, an, it was open source December this, 3rd. Okay, December 2015. So not only is it already just, you know, very accessible, but then it gets open sourced. I mean, it's just, it's just great. Uh, can you tell us about... How, uh, you know, what's kind of going through your mind or in you and the team um, 
and and like talk about the team at that point and like what is what's going on like the day when you guys hit the button like go sure. open source you know well it's kind of funny because um, many people assume that swift becoming open source was this big challenge and apple had to do all kinds of soul searching or something like that um, but in fact swift was always kind of assumed that it would be open source um, apple has a great track record with lvm and the clang side of things um, and LDB and libc++ and many other things that they've done as open source in the compiler and tool space. And so when we start working on Swift, um, uh, so actually to back up, when we open source Swift, we didn't just open source the current version of Swift. We actually released the entire history of Swift going back to the first day. And the reason that was possible was it was always assumed that Swift would be open source someday. And therefore, it was developed with an open source style. You know, there weren't tons of swear words in it or something like that that had to be purged from the history. Um, it was always built as though it would be open source. And um, so internally, the question wasn't so much uh, would it be open source? It was more a question of when when is the right time? And open sourcing it before Swift 2 came out, for example, um, would have been a really bad idea because... Uh, to be open source, you have to put a lot of effort and energy into it. And Swift 1 to Swift 2 had so much so much work to be done to just kind of finish up the, the core language model that we were shooting for. And so we really wanted to focus the team and focus everybody on uh, really sticking that and making sure that it could happen. Um, so then after Swift 2 got done, everybody we the, we turned the team and said, "Okay, well let's let's do this." And that was not that was not a hard sell for the team. Everybody wanted it to be open source. Everybody understood um, the virtue of doing that. LVM and Clang were open source, and so many of the people working on Swift had worked in those communities and and really knew the value of a community effort. Um, but that itself was a huge amount of work because you have to set up tons of infrastructure, you have to do a whole bunch of uh, things about how, how should the project be governed, uh, how should, where should it be hosted, should it be on GitHub or should it be somewhere else, and answer all these basic questions. And so it all kind of came together in December when we opened the doors, and that itself was a very exciting day as well. And I think we were blown away by the response from the community, and uh, we didn't expect the kind of reception that we got at all. Um, I think it was one of the um, fastest growing languages on GitHub the second day it existed, which is kind of mind blowing. What does it mean for the open source community, um, you know, and, and programming for, for like Swift to become open source? Like what, what was, yeah. Like, like what, what do you think that means? Like why, well, why there, you, there's yeah. a couple, there's a couple of uh, open source community, a couple of different things. And, um, one, the very basic answer is there is a copy of the source code that's available to you. And so some, some, some open source projects don't support open development, but they make their code available. And um, that has the advantage that if, if you need to understand how a program works, you can go dig into it and understand, but it doesn't allow you to contribute back to the project to make it better. So the next step up in terms of open source is having open development. Um, and this is a case where you'll see a project on GitHub and maybe they allow pull requests. And so you can send a pull request to say, hey, I'd like to add this feature. I'd like to fix this bug. And they can accept your, your patch back. Um, and that's great because not only can you see the code, but you can actually contribute to it. You can make it better. And if it does 99% of what you want it to do, you can actually solve that 1% rather than 
um, you know, asking the developer nicely to do it on their on their time. <laughs> Swift took it one step farther, which I think was really really exciting and absolutely the right thing to do, which was to also enable open design. And so, um, again, one of the challenges working on Swift early on was we have a lot of smart people working on the team, of course, and uh, the Swift team at Apple is amazing, but Apple doesn't have all the smart people in the world. And uh, benefiting from the world at large is something that we really wanted to do because there's a ton of really great people that are out there that maybe have a ton of experience using Swift but don't even know how to work on compilers, right? And so we want to get their input and allow them to guide guide the language direction. And so in addition to making the code available, in addition to open open source and allowing contributions, Swift also has an open design process, which is called Swift Evolution. So you have Swift.org. You know, I, I actually visit it. You know, anytime I want to like start contributing to open source Swift, like go to Swift.org. I've actually like cloned the repo like on my computer, and I've I've tried to like start. I've even went on like Jira and like looked at some bugs, but for some reason I can't figure out exactly like how to really do it. Like, is there any more? Do you think that there's more? things that we can do as a community to make it even more accessible to contribute? Or do you think it's even necessary? Um, I think it's definitely necessary. Um, I think the Swift community really cares about getting new contributors. One thing that we do is we tag bugs in Jira with the starter bug tag, and that's a good place for people to start. Um, Some of the Swift newsletters that come out every week or so uh, include lists of the starter bugs. Um, but the, the best way to go about it is if you're interested in diving in, you can send an email to the Swift development list and say, Hey, I want to get started. What do I need to do? Um, I want to do this kind of a thing, uh, but I have this problem. Can somebody help? And usually somebody will answer really quickly. Um, uh, there was actually a talk at Swift summit about how, to, how Ayaka got involved with Swift and actually contributed uh, a new feature and the process she went through. And I think it's a great talk and it's a great place to start if you're interested in getting involved with the Swift community. Yeah, I was uh, was there. I saw that one. That was really good. I, I'm one of these days I'm going to make time. I've tried, um, but I'm actually going to get there. I'm going to like take, do a starter bug. I've looked. I saw the starter bug and I was like, okay, but now what do I do? So uh, yeah, one day... Well, and, and, and you don't have to contribute to the Swift project either. I mean, if it's an interest to get involved in the compiler or maybe you want to work on the standard library or maybe work on the, the foundation implementation, uh, there's, it's right there and there's a lot of work to do and your, your interest and enthusiasm is definitely welcome. But it's also okay just to follow along or just to completely ignore it and use Swift. That's, that's perfectly fine. Right. So... I want to talk about the um, like sw- the core team and the Swift community and how that works. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about like you know why what was why was that important to make sure that there was like sort of this core team in place and like yeah. how is it how does it play in the community today? Yeah, so the the core team came about when we open source Swift because we need to have a way to explain to the community and provide a structure for how we would process evolution requests and uh, how to handle the the inevitable questions that would come up over time in the Swift community. And so one of the things that's interesting is that while I started Swift uh, many years ago in, in 2010, it's certainly not the case that I've done all the work. And it's certainly not the case I've even done most of the work. Um, and so the core team is 
a, a few of the, the most senior technical leads uh, and leaders in the SWIFT community. And so they all represent different kinds of perspectives and backgrounds, and they, they bring different things to the team. Um, and they are really the leaders in the SWIFT community. Um, and it's, it's also kind of funny because many of them are pretty quiet people, just their style. And so you, you wouldn't maybe see them commenting on a lot of the mailing lists, but they're the people to get things done, and they're, they're really the, the leadership of the SWIFT community. How important is it uh, that the core, you know, the core team sort of like, are they the ones that are really making sure Swift kind of stays to its core and like yeah. fundamentals? Um, yeah. And are they, I, I don't follow the mailing list that much, but like, I assume there's probably a lot of kind of discussion going on. Uh, it it's, must be a hard kind of thing. Like you want to work with the community, but you kind of need to stick to your guns. Yeah. Well, so it's definitely a balance. Um, I think that what the core team ends up doing is that um, the community, the community definitely has more time and enthusiasm and more people than the core team do, right? The core team are some of the best coders on the project. And anytime they spend arguing on a mailing list, they're spending not implementing some new amazing generic system feature, right? Right. And so there's, there's, a, there's a hard balance there. Um, but one of the great things about the community is the community over the last year has really uh, evolved, and there's some really amazing people that have a good sense of what Swift is supposed to be, even in the community that aren't on the core team. And so a lot of the discussions that go on um, on the Swift Evolution mailing list, for example, end up not having core team members chiming in on them just because the, the thread goes on and then people decide it's not the right way to go anyways. And if the community decides it's not worth considering, then the core team doesn't have to uh, spend time thinking about it, in a sense. Um, but the the core team is really interesting because they're different people kind of res- represent different perspectives. Um, so I, I can just run through them really quick. So there's Ted Kremenek. He he manages the Swift team. He is also the one that that sets out the goals and decides what the the high level the high level target is for this year. So are we going for ABI stability or, or things like that? And so he's the one that sets, sets things in motion and then kind of chases, herds all the cats to make sure that it all happens. Um, he's also a PhD. He's a brilliant Stanford guy. And I mean, but that, that's kind of his, his, his strength. There's Doug Greger. He's the guy that is the architect and lead for the generic system. Um, he drove the, the big effort to implement C++ and Clang before that. Um, but Doug is the one that really defined early on what generics and Swift would look like and really owns kind of that, pushing that forward. Um, John McCall, he's, he's, he's one of these scary smart people. He's the type theory, um, you know, crazy language guy. Uh, he, he's the guy that... Uh, We'll be sitting in the meeting. You think he's not listening. <laughs> everybody's talking. And then he's like, yeah, that won't ever work because of this. And then everybody's just quiet and says, oh, yeah, huh. That's a problem. Thanks, John. <laughs> uh, there's Joe Groff. Joe Groff is all over Twitter. He's an amazing, amazing dude. He, he cares so much about the com- community. Um, and he's also just a compiler, architect, genius type person. He did major parts of the, the Swift internals and 
Um, I think that he has a big interest in concurrency, and so he'll be helping push that forward when that becomes important. Uh, Dave Abrahams, he's the architect of the standard library. He's where Doug implements the generic system. Dave is the expert in using the generic system. And so all these people kind of work together to represent different different things. And, and then there's me, I guess. Um, my... Uh, I, I can't compare to these people in terms of their strengths, but I, I kind of help pull together Swift and the aesthetic side of things and the feel and making sure it all comes together well and, and uh, you know, is tasteful, I guess. Is Dave Abrams the uh, professor of blowing your mind? Yes, he is. He's okay. also crusty. Oh, he's crusty? He's crusty. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, but that photo, that's not him, is it? No, 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 no. no. Okay. Well, that's, that's him on a very bad day, I guess, maybe. No. <laughs> can, we, can we know the story behind that photo or no? Uh, we, we can. I don't, though. Uh, okay. you, can, you can ask him. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You heard it here, folks. He's crusty. Nice. That's so cool. Yeah, okay. So, so the the core team is amazing. Um, again, they they bring so many different perspectives and so much uh, deep background to the Swift project. But th- there's also a ton of other engineers on the Swift project, both on the compiler, but also if you go out to the the core libraries and and other pieces, the the Swift effort at Apple is just it's just mind blowing the the amount that people care about it and and the amazing thing is that people just know that they're changing the world and so they are so so into it and so excited and and motivated it's just incredible to work with them yeah. and then of course the swift community and the open source side of things i again never expected anything like it and it's just completely completely amazing it's so great to work with everybody yeah okay so you have this incredible group on the core team and then you have the whole Swift community. And then there's like kind of people who've risen sort of to be like leaders of the open source side. They're obviously, they're not employees of Apple, but they, you know, they're just, uh, yeah, they're not employees, but they're like leaders in the open source Swift community. Um, how does that feel to kind of have like give this thing? Like you're almost like, you know, you're birthing this creation and you kind of are, I mean, in a very real way, you're handing it off. Um, you know, and so there's probably you're kind of scared, but then you, you know, you feel you probably feel pretty good with this. You know, it's in good hands. You know, can you talk about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I it's kind of the same thing I did with the LLVM community where LLVM, um, you know, my, my goal over time for LLVM was for it to take over the world and <laughs> become the standard compiler thing that everybody uses. And it isn't 100 percent, but it really has. Uh, taken over a big part of the compiler world. Um, I, I think my goal for Swift is exactly the same. Uh, I and and the folks at Apple and Apple itself would love to see it take over the world and for it to become, you know, uh, more widely used than Java is, for example. Um, and for that to happen, it needs to get to all the different platforms. It needs to be usable in all the different ways. And I think Swift has more legs than Java does, um, but it just needs needs time to bake out and build out and and you know to get to ultimate greatness we have to take time and do it right and not get so so much in a hurry that um, we make short-term decisions that jeopardize that uh, long-term world domination plan <laughs> yeah, that's that's good I like that like because yeah. we are we're always trying to move very fast but that's really interesting to hear. Um, like wanting to kind of take it slow in in some ways to make yeah, sure. Well, we and, and I think right. Swift Four is a great example of that, where 
Um, there, there are a ton of amazing features that Swift is missing. For example, a concurrency model. For example, systems programming features. For example, tons of smaller improvements to generic system or other existing features in the, the, the language in the libraries. Um, but I think that the biggest thing that people are struggling with as Swift programmers right now is none of those. The, the biggest problem right now is that the compiler needs to be more reliable, compile times need to be faster, um, and, and basic things like that need to get better. And that's really what the team is focusing on. And while some people might really want to have an amazing concurrency model, um, you know, building on a, a foundation that's not 100% solid isn't, isn't great. And so it's important to take time to budget, budget that into the, the, the schedule and make that a priority. And that's really what the team is doing. And that, that's an example, again, of where Ted is brilliant. And Ted is really helping push things forward. And he's the one that's making sure that gets prioritized. And, um, of course, the entire team is easy to convince on this. But, um, but it's, it's really great to see everybody pulling together to make it happen. So we have a lot of people that are becoming programmers for the first time uh, because of iPhone and apps and iOS and now Swift especially. Um, but when Swift becomes open source, you know, now you have Swift on the server. You have like IBM Keturah and Perfect mm -hmm. and Vapor. Um, so right now you can do, you know, uh, Mac OS, iOS, tvOS, watchOS, Swift on the server, um, you can do um, like command line tools like Swift scripting and things like that. Um, as an investment, you know, like we're putting our, our time, not, you know, not that you really need to do anything more than that, because that's a lot to like be a programmer in any one of those platforms. But like going forward in Swift has always been kind of marketed as like general purpose programming language. Like what are other applications? I always ask people this and I, I never really, you know, I never understand, like, what are other applications? Like, are there other applications? Like, what could you, yeah, else sure. could you do with it? So, so I think that the way I look at it is maybe different than other people. Um, I look at it in terms of what is it great at today? What is the next frontier, the things that are coming up? And then what is the long-term goal? Right? And so today, I think Swift is the obvious answer if you're building an iOS or a Mac app, right? It's um, the, the best way to do it. It's proven. Um, there's a huge community of people doing it. There's a lot of support. Um, it will keep getting better, but already that is obvious. Right. Um, the next frontier, I think, is server development. Um, and that's because uh, Swift, Swift, the feature Swift has right now make it really interesting and really compelling in that space, if, particularly if you compare it to the competitors. Um, the the major deficiencies that Swift has right now are it just doesn't have a very mature package ecosystem for server development, and it doesn't have really great support for concurrency. Um, concurrency will come probably starting in Swift 5, I would guess. Um, but even even then, I mean, I think that IBM's efforts, but also uh, every everybody else in the Swift server space is really making things great. And there's uh, one of the newer things that got added to the Swift community was a ser the Swift server development team, which is a which is a official part of Swift.org, which pulls together Perfect, Vapor, the IBM Couture people, and a whole bunch of others that are interested in this, so they all can work together on common code base. And so that's really exciting. Yeah, that really is. So that's the server work working group? Yep, yep, yeah, exactly. That's really awesome. Um, looking out farther, um, I would love to see Swift on Android. That's perhaps 
uh, well, so today people are already doing it, but if Google would embrace it, for example, I think that would be uh, world-changing in terms of Swift and um, the, the audience of people using it. Um, I have no idea whether or not that's likely to happen or not, but um, people, the open source community is already doing some work to enable that. Um, other things are server development, or sorry, systems programming. So my interest in systems programming is not in terms of a short-term a short-term, high-priority thing that we need to do. But I think that uh, Swift scaling from low-level systems programming, like you would write in C code, all the way up to scripting is an achievable goal. And if we can get this, the systems programming piece done, suddenly Swift is usable in more places than Java is, more places than Python, more places than any of these other things, and will retain all the things that make Swift great today. And when, once you do that, um, the, the, the goal of world domination really seems achievable. And so I'm very excited about that, but also it's about the right thing at the right time, and so it's not the high priority at the minute. Right, right. Um, scripting is also something that I think Swift could be really great at. We just need time to invest in it, and that takes the form of regular expressions, multi-line string literals, and uh, other, other frameworks built on top of it. I mean, I've done some Swift scripting, and there's a there's some people out there that are doing some really cool stuff with uh, Swift scripting. I don't know that much about scripting and, and 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 things like that, so it's cool to hear that, you know, that there's more things that can be improved. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our our goal. So you can look at, um, you know, the goal of if we want to be better. If if Swift wants to be amazing for scripting, the goal isn't to have a few features that enable it. It's to be better than. Ruby, or better than Python, or better than one of the other entrenched uh, languages that everybody reaches to when they have a problem that space to solve. And, and so the, the same thing with systems programming or with application programming, right? The goal with the goal for uh, server development, for example, is we, Swift should be better than better than Java at building large scale server applications. It should be better than Node.js at building lightweight asynchronous jobs. It should be better than Go at building those core cloud applications that they're great at. And this is certainly not the, not the case today, but I think that we have a credible path to get there and we need to take it one step at a time. So when you say systems programming or like a system, do you mean like, uh, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by like a system. Yeah, sure. So what, what I mean by that is you want to write a compiler, you want to write an operating system kernel, you want to write the firmware that goes into a microprocessor, things like that. Wow, so, so the, you would the write really, the whole really, thing. really low-level stuff. Wow, so you'd write that on Swift. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So if I wanted to like, I don't know, write like um for like like an operating system for like a little microchip that i don't know does something i could do that in swift potentially in the future yeah exactly that's that's not something that's great today but i think there's a path to get there so wow you know in the next five years i hope that that'll be um something that lots of people want to do that's interesting yeah so for me and i think a lot of people out there that's that sounds awesome because like you want to feel like you're investing in something um but then I kind of get a little scared and I'm thinking like, wait, but then like, do I need to start getting like more low level and am I not going to be able to, uh, so, but I, it seems to me like it's just going to continue to become higher and higher level, like programming yeah. in general. So, so the, the, the great thing about this is that we don't want, uh, Swift expanding its market kind of market share or market relevance to jeopardize what makes Swift great. So the ease of use, the learnability, the, um, easy on-ramp from other languages, all the things that make Swift great, and just the core feel of it, for example, all, the, all those things 
cannot be <laughs> jeopardized at all. Right. But when Swift starts serving other spaces, for example, um, as Swift becomes really amazing for server development, that means that you as a Swift programmer are just more marketable. Your ability to know how Swift works is now directly transferable to other spaces. And so if you're a mobile app developer, for example, and your boss says, hey, we need to bring up a server component, you can say, oh, okay, I just need to learn a few things about servers. I don't need to learn a whole new programming language and a bunch of stuff about servers. And so it just makes it so that you can you can grow and uh, evolve your own career over time. Okay, so we've come to the end of the interview, but before we go, I want to do a couple of things. So this is kind of like... You know, these are the last little questions here. So uh, Swift is out, uh, announced 2014. It gets open sourced today. It's 2017. Like, you know, all designs, all creations have compromises. Um, like looking back, you know, what are some of the, some of like the big challenges that you had that you sort of had to choose? And um like what? Uh, what are you thinking about, like going forward on being able to solve those, if if at all? Sure. Um, well, it's an interesting question. I think the biggest challenge, which hasn't led to compromise, it's just led to led to short term trade offs, is the intense pressure from the community because so many people started using Swift so quickly, we had to evolve it while people were using it, and that that led to a lot of uh, heartache among developers. Um, but I think that now that Swift 3 is done, I think that that, that source breakage is going to be largely over, or at least a lot better than it used to be. Um, but the good news about that was that because we were willing to change the language as we went, um, we aren't stuck with a lot of you know, accidental mistakes from the past, and it's one of the reasons that Swift is so nice to use today. Um, probably the only technical thing that I think is uh, unfortunate in the language is uh, the initializer model. So initializers have a whole bunch of different features and a bunch of different capabilities, and they interact in kind of a crazy way. Um, I think that will fix itself over time, though, because a lot of those things um, impact you while you're using uh, specific frameworks. And as those frameworks have a chance to adapt and pick simpler models, um, the, the need for that complexity will go down. And so while it will stay in Swift forever, um, I don't think programmers will be exposed to it as much. So you mean like the whole required designated yeah, exactly. initializer, that whole sort of, it's yep, almost like all, a all that stuff. initialization hierarchy almost. Or yeah. Something. So, I mean, I, it, in a ideal world, it would have been nice to have a, a simpler model that didn't have all those different options and all those different moving parts. But again, I don't think I think that the, the trade-off was well worth it to make sure that Swift worked great with all of Coco and Coco Touch. And if yes. we didn't do that, then you know it wouldn't. I wouldn't be here talking to you. Successful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for going whichever way you know you ended up going uh, to to make it so that we could be here today. Okay. Yeah. So we have come to the end, and and I promise these are really the last two. Um, so the last is where can people contact you online, if at all. Um, so I follow Twitter. You can definitely tweet to me. I'm uh, Latner underscore LVM on Twitter. That's probably the easiest place. Cool. You can also, if you have general Swift questions, you should go to the Swift mailing list and, uh, and ask there. Uh, there's a lot more people that can answer them than just me. And so um, that's the best way to get a response. Awesome. Okay. And the very last, uh, last thing, uh, one piece of advice for people learning Swift. 
one piece of advice. Uh, always stay hungry and, and keep learning. I think that's generally good life advice um, in Swift and otherwise because there's so much to do, so much to learn. You can't know it all no matter how long you do it. But if you just keep learning, then, uh, then you can do amazing things. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. All right, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Wow, wow, wow. So, you know, telling us about your story going from, you know, getting that uh, computer from the, from the, what was it? The, um, the timeshare. The timeshare. Yeah, your parents bringing it home and you opening up a book. What's a book? And learning how to program and then getting on like uh, the BBS, like billboard system yeah, at some point yeah. and the FTP and like. Uh, th- th- things have changed. Uh, I, I don't really think of myself as an old timer, but I guess that <laughs> happened somewhere along the way. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, you know, studying it in high school. And then I think you said in high school you found like a mentor, luckily, and, and he really kind of pushed you or, you know, and helped you. And then, you know, going into college. And uh, your professor was like super into compilers and that became infectious and you got into it. And uh, yeah, then like the whole, you know, then going on beyond university for like a master's, I think you said it was, or a PhD. Yeah, I eventually got a PhD. Yeah, and like uh, LLVM and Clang. And then following your passion, uh, which was LLVM and like working on it and, and being able to like finding an opportunity at Apple to continue working on that. And just, yeah, following that and over the years, uh, I think it was like 11 years or something, 13 years you were at Apple, just continuing wi- with your passion and ultimately creating uh, Swift, you know, being the creator of and working with a whole group of people on, and announcing Swift and uh, playgrounds in Xcode and then Swift playgrounds, which we didn't even talk about, making um, you know programming more accessible. Just, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, it's on great. Show. It's great to be here. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of your show. So it's great to get to talk with you. Wow, you heard it, folks. You heard it. <laughs> and that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends.